All right, I'm turning over to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter number 4, and we're going to begin in verse number 1, and as we begin another chapter here in this great book, we have uh, reached the next to the last chapter. There are five chapters in 1 Peter, and uh, I will say over the next uh, couple of weeks, um, we might uh, move a bit quicker. Uh, we'll see what the Lord does with that. Uh, I have an intent tonight to get through these first 11 verses, uh, which uh, typically the way we do things, that's quite a bit of verses at one time for me. So I'm not going to make that promise tonight, but that's what we're going to be looking at. But what I want to do is I want to draw our attention to a couple of statements, and then we're going to go back. And instead of reading the entire text, uh, we're just going to go verse by verse and just deal with each verse. But I do want you to mark two expressions that you will see in verse number one. The Bible says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Two expressions in that verse. Number one, Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, which tells us, this great truth. It tells us that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, took upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh and suffered great reproach, ridicule, the curse of the law, the wrath of God, and even death for us. When you see that phrase, Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, that's what we're dealing with. The second expression is arm yourselves with the same mind. When we think about arming ourselves, often we think of, uh, sometimes we think of weaponry or we think of strengthening ourselves, but it says arm yourselves with the same mind. So he's not talking about bringing a weapon or he's not talking about providing for yourself. He's simply saying arm yourself with the same mind or the same thought process in which you've just read. Which tells us that as Christ has suffered, and Christ has suffered for you, that you and I need to be prepared to suffer whatever persecution, whatever ridicule, whatever reproaches, whatever self-denials for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. So we could summarize these two statements by simply saying this, Christ has suffered for us, so prepare yourself to experience the same. Christ has suffered for us. Prepare yourself to experience the same. Now, the great question I want to ask ourselves tonight is this. How can we live for the glory of God knowing that suffering is going to come? Now think about that for just a moment. How can we live for the glory of God knowing suffering is going to come? Remember, the Bible doesn't ask us to do that which is impossible. Now remember, there are some truths in the Bible that are very difficult. There are things we look at and we consider that could never be done. That could never be accomplished. Yet the Bible gives the commands and he's not giving us these things in order that we might figure out how to work this out and do it ourselves. In other words, there has to be a key as to how can we arm ourselves knowing that the glory of God is what we've been left here to display, but knowing that suffering is going to come. 
Well, knowing what we know in verse 1 now, look over at verse number 10 or look down at verse number 10, whatever the case may be in your Bible. Peter writes these words. He says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. What is this manifold grace of God? Well, what the Bible's teaching us here, and very clearly teaches us, that believers, and I want to take this for our subject tonight, believers have been given what we'll refer to as empowering grace to live in this world. We talk a lot here about being saved by grace, but we don't mention a lot about living by grace or living in the power of grace, empowered grace, empowering grace. All believers have received a gift of God's empowering grace. I want you to hold your place there in 1 Peter and go to the book of Ephesians quickly. Let me just show you just a verse of support here. Ephesians chapter number 4, verse number 7. Of course, the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 is writing about uh, Christians, believers. He's exhorting them to live worthy of their calling because they are part of Christ's body. And he admonishes them to put off sin and put on Christ. As a matter of fact, he deals in verse number 1 of chapter 4, uh, as a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. He speaks of uh, being lowliness and meekness with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, even as you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And then he says this in verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The word grace here in Ephesians 4, 7 is not referring to saving grace. It's referring to empowering grace. It is the grace or the gift or the power of to serve God. What we often don't think about is that uh, saved by grace, we also need to be empowered by grace to serve God. It is more than just saying, okay, now I'm saved. My life is going to completely change and I'm going to live and serve God. You and I cannot serve God without God empowering us. You can't put off sin without God empowering you. We can't endeavor to keep the unity of spirit. We can't love one another. We cannot deal with one another. We can't forbear with one another without the gift of God's grace. That empowering grace is something that when we think about it, we have to understand that when Peter writes to those in the book of, of Peter, and Paul is writing here to those in the Ephesians, he's writing to those who have a common calling. They're believers. So whether Paul, who wrote to the church at Ephesus, or Peter, who's writing to the scattered believers, they are still to be uh, knowing about the reality of to live in this Grace that is given by the gift of God. Now notice that Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 7 that this is according to the measure 
of the gift of Christ. God gave each believer ability according to His will. In other words, if you are a child of God tonight, you have been given empowering grace to live these things. This isn't something that we have to go seeking after. Paul even wrote in Ephesians 3, verse number 8, he said, Unto me, which who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul wasn't writing when he speaks about being less than the least of all saints. He wasn't talking about being uh, less in knowledge, less in gifts or authority or integrity. But he was speaking about less because of his past sins and ignorance. In other words, Paul is writing of a time when he did know better. He's writing of a time when he was not fully understanding his present need of a Savior or his sin. Paul writes about the unsearchable riches of Christ, which simply means beyond our ability to fully comprehend. That's what the unsearchable riches of Christ are. But this empowering grace that Peter is writing to us about, this is not something we go seeking after. This is something that the believer has been given. We have been given the ability to do these things which Peter is writing out before us tonight. Now you'll notice in verse number 1 again, he says, As Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind that he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now look what he says in verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. It's remarkable that Peter, the phrases that he uses in verse number 1 are very similar to what Paul expresses in Galatians 2.20 when he uses the expression, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, he speaks of a death. He speaks of something that has now taken place. And the result of what's taken place, Christ's suffering for us in the flesh, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. In other words, a believer's life as a result of what Christ has done is to no longer be defined by sin, but rather it should be defined by doing the will of God. What used to define me was my sin. What ought to define me now is doing the will of God. That's why Peter mentions here He's mentioning, he speaks to a common group of people who would understand what he's talking about. We have a Savior who died for us. And as those are who are of his kingdom, we should expect to suffer. And we should expect that as he died, we should be willing to accept this great truth that we may die as well. If we have indeed died with Christ, if we have indeed been a desire to do his will... The power of Christ's suffering makes us dead to sin. Now, does that mean we never sin? No. But it is not the great desire of our lives anymore. What drives us, what moves us is not sin. What drives us and moves us is now the will of God. How do we acquire that? It comes by the empowering grace. This is not self-help. 
This is not, uh, I'm going to do better today. This is not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put away sin. I'm going to not do those things anymore. This is the reference to empowering grace. And what's interesting is he's not just talking about empowering grace to remove sin. He's talking about empowering grace to actually love one another and empowering grace to actually minister to each other. But he deals with the sin aspect of this first. So we are sons of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We have indeed been saved by His grace, but we still have to live in this world. Now, there's great theological problems in our world today. There are many who believe that I can live in God's grace, but uh, my salvation was not by God's grace, and vice versa. Others believe I'm saved by grace, and that's it. The reality is, is we are saved by grace, but we also need that empowering grace to live the life that desires to do the will of God. This is not just making up my mind to do it on my own. This is God having to give me this empowerment to do it. Now, he's not, he's not giving us this and just saying, now just stop and consider this. He's saying these should be the characteristic. And he says in verse number three, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Believers once lived according to their own carnality. They lived according to the desires of their flesh. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.3, we were children of wrath. But when a person is converted, when a person has been changed, the, their previous way of life now becomes a life of shame and reproach. In other words, something that used to be, now needs to be fought against. Now I need to fight against my old life, realizing I'm no longer in that life. The world thinks opposite of what I just said. The unsaved world doesn't fight against that life. They desire that life. As a believer, we are to fight against the former life. And that's going to lead Peter into saying what he's going to say when he mentions when they think it's strange that you don't run with them. See, because man's mentality before Christ is I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to live for my own desires. I'm going to live for whatever sin I can acquire. The more, the better. But in this, we see that there's been a change. The doctrine of and the truth of Christ's substitutionary death is the strongest possible argument for us to live a life of purity and of holiness. We live that life because of what Christ has done. Remember, Peter is writing to people who understood, just like when Paul wrote to people who understood what it was to be saved. It's as if he's writing, brethren, you lived in sin once, but now since Christ has died for your sin, you should no longer be living for sin. You should have died to sin, and now you are living unto God. Because now I see that Christ died in my place. Christ took my sin. The argument here is your life now as a believer 
is to be in him a life of holiness, a life that runs contrary to the world and rather runs to the praise and the glory of God. Now notice he says there in verse number three, again, for the time past of our life, meaning that before we were converted, there was plenty of opportunity to sin before we were converted. As a matter of fact, before we were converted, he says it was, may suffice us to have wrought. The word wrought there uh, literally means worked. Okay? We worked lasciviousness and lust and excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable heresies. This is what we wrought. This is what we produced. This is what sin put out. This is what we were. Lasciviousness is dealing with sensual things. Banquetings are, uh, would be referred to in our day as uh, drinking parties. We might even refer to those. But now he says, verse 4, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. The they here are those who are still walking. Now they think it's strange that you don't do it. That's as practical as you can put it. That, they're like, what do you mean? You don't have a desire to do these things. You don't participate in these things. You're opposite of this. They think it's strange. But yet Peter says that that's exactly what's supposed to happen. That phrase, excess of riot. Uh, that, that word, that phrase literally means exceeding or overflowing with wickedness. So in other words, he says, they think it's strange that you are not overflowing with wickedness. Now again, you're talking about running counter. You're talking about running counterculture. You're talking about a world that is going one direction, but yet you're going another direction. You're going this way, they're going that way. What's made the difference? It's the power of God's grace. It's, it's the empowering of God's grace to go contrary to the world, to go opposite of what the world is now going. Now the Bible tells us here in verse 4 about this, this strange world. This world that we live in it calls people who won't do evil. It speaks against them. Why don't you do like we do? Why do you live contrary to the world? Everybody, we remember this when we were kids, and we told our parents, our parents asked us why we did that, and we said what? Because everybody's doing it. Don't think it's strange when they don't do, and they want to know, why are you not going the same direction. The world's verdict concerning believers is that those believers are of very little value. They have no value to us because they don't run with us. That's why believers, we are peculiar. We, we do stand out. Uh, you are supposed to stand out to a place, and not just, not just in ways that we think, but uh, the world should think it's strange that you don't think and live and desire to do the very things that they do. The very thing in which 
we do because God tells us to, because he's empowered us to, is the very thing the world says, we're going to use that to speak evil of you. If you're not going to sin like we do, if you're not going to follow our sinful desires like we do, if you're not going to sing what we sing, if you're not going to use our language, if you're, you're not going to do it our way, then we'll respond by hating you. That's what the world is saying to believers. We're just going to hate you because you do it differently and it's not according to what we're doing. And we think about this tonight and we wonder, we wonder why things happen the way they do. They think we're the ones that are missing out. They're the ones saying you're, you're missing out on all the things that you should be enjoying. Now the difference between a person who is born again Okay, when we talk about being born again, we're, we're talking about even our, our morality changes, even our, what we used to love now is no longer our great love anymore. What we used to once love, now we hate. There's such a great change that takes place at conversion that only one who is truly converted, when they're truly converted, it really will be to the amazement of those who knew you before. They're going to look at you and say, it is an amazing change has taken place in you. We've all heard that before. You don't do what you used to do. You don't even talk like you used to talk. You are different. What made the difference? Christ makes the difference. But we're not left here alone. When the Holy Spirit of God, upon our conversion, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and empowers us to be able to live a life that runs contrary to the world. That's what we mean by empowering grace. I'm not making up a new doctrine. I'm just trying to get it into mind where we think about, how am I able to run counter counter world knowing that I'm going to suffer? Because in our humanity... The first thing we're going to do is want to run the opposite way. If suffering is on that road, I don't want to go down that road. But he says you need to be prepared to suffer because as a believer, you are going to suffer. It's just a matter of time. So how am I going to live in this life to the glory of God without God's empowering me? That's exactly what we're talking about here. Now, Peter does write in verse 5, he says, Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Notice it says he's ready to judge the quick and the dead. This is, this is a difficult passage, but uh, the gospel, the gospel being preached, notice even in verse 6, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. These, these people that have departed, these people who are already dead, it was preached to them. The gospel was preached to them. Yet, there was no reception of that. Or, you have the idea here that he's talking about, that who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, There's a, a day coming when those that are alive in Christ, at the coming of Christ, will be judged. And all those who were dead before then will also not escape the judgment. For they shall be raised from their graves to give, to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Though they had the gospel preached to them, the world judged believers. Okay, now this is kind of going, this is where this kind of gets convoluted here. 
The, the, the people who see believers die, the people who see believers go through suffering, the people who see uh, these believers suffer, sometimes martyrdom, the world judges them by the outward appearances, by what they're, what's happening to them and what they're going through. But God judges us and he will vindicate us even though we go through times of suffering, even though we go through times of persecution. The world's going to see and say, look what's happening to you as a believer. Yet, God will vindicate His people. God will vindicate, vindicate His children. Now again, when we talk about understanding these men who have, even who have died, who believe the gospel, they went through the sentence of death just like every other human being does. Being a Christian, being a believer does not stop death from coming. But notice what it says here. He says, but they live according to God in the Spirit. Man judged that as a, of no value, but as they died in God, they are still living today according to God in the Spirit. So even those martyrs, even those believers who experience the worst of deaths are still living today and they're living in the presence of God. They're still living. But the world says, what a waste. You've heard it. People say, why would you... People who need religion. Religion, have you heard this? Religion is a crutch. Religion is for weak people. Religion is for people who don't have uh, the mental stability. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's, that's the lie of, a, of a, an unbelieving world. Jesus Christ is not a crutch. Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the, he is the only uh, remedy that we have. But the world says, you foolish, foolish Christians, what, what, why would you waste your time You've suffered martyrdom. You suffer persecution. Yet according to God and according to Christ, they are living forevermore. Then Peter moves into the reality of time. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We're never told the exact time or the seasons which are still yet to come. The Holy Spirit, as the inspired Word of God, it always tends to leave us wondering, when will this end come? When is, when is the, the last days? When are these things going to be? Well, notice what Peter says. We are to be as men who are always alert who are always waiting because the end of the world, the end of time may be at any moment. Maybe day, maybe night. The end of all things is at hand. And he says, as a result, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. In other words, don't be so consumed with the things of this world, but rather be consumed, maintain your stance, maintain your steadfastness, be ready for His return. 
Be ready because you know not the hour. You know not the time. Sober is not a reference specifically to abstaining from intoxicating beverages, but that's the idea. He's, he's saying don't become uh, literally uh, taken in with something else that keeps you from being ready, from being alert. Peter deals with a number of thoughts here. He's dealing with people think it's strange you don't sin like they do. God, the people are going to give an account for their, uh, for their actions. Uh, believers who have died, who appeared to die, and the men of, who, who judge them by saying, uh, what a wasted life, they're alive in the Spirit. He says, be ready for the end is at hand. And then he says in verse number 8, and above all things, notice this, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. He says, watch unto prayer, be prepared, be ready. This can come at any moment. When Christ comes, he's going to know you as his disciples. And here's a reference for fervent charity. One of the things the Lord himself actually used is he would know his disciples if they had love for one another. If there is a lack of love for one another, then we've missed the main idea of what Jesus was saying about what a disciple is. He says, have fervent charity for charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. Charity or love is what ought to characterize a relationship between believers. Believers ought to be marked by their love for each other. In other words, you ought to be able to look at believers and say, listen, we may not agree with them, but there is certainly a love between those believers. They have, what does he say? A fervent charity. That idea is something that is diligent and continuing. It's always uh, building. Love will render one thing, one main thing. Love renders us very quick to forgive others who've sinned against us. Now Peter's even dealing with the fact of being forgiving. It's a really amazing thing that the, the journey Peter has gone on from verse 1 just down to verse number 8, the, the journey of the Christian life he's talking about here, and that's what we're talking. All of these things are not possible unless there is the grace of God that is empowering us to do these things. Now notice he's not talking about when he says covering the multitude of sins. He's not, he's not talking about pretending they're not there. He's not talking about putting sin underneath the rug and just ignoring it. But folks, here's the reality that's always going to be between people. When there's a lack of love for each other, people's faults are always going to be made bigger than they really are. In other words, if I have a, have a very light love for you, I'm going to be more aware of your faults than I really should be. If my love for you is fervent, I am going to be much quicker to forgive your faults. Even if you sin against me, even if it's something, I'm going to be quicker to forgive you if there's love. Wherever there is true love, Biblical love in the heart. 
Folks, we're going to be a little bit more understanding. We're going to allow for the weaknesses. We're going to allow for the times when others may not live up to what we expect. These are basic Christian graces. These are basic fruits of the Spirit. These are things that we don't do. The fruits of the Spirit are not a result of you reforming yourself and getting better. The fruits of the Spirit are a result of the empowering grace of God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's giving you the ability to love with meekness, to love this way. We're never going to be able to love each other as believers without the Holy Spirit of God. You're never going to be able to accomplish that without God's empowering. By my loving others, I'm being used as an instrument in the hand of God. Does God need me? No. But when I am, and when I am being used by God, when I'm serving God, I'm being used by His hand. Now notice he talks about use hospitality one to another without grudging. Grudging's a word for mean grumbling or complaining. Hospitality is a word that we think about today and but I want you to think about even in the day in which Peter lived when people traveled in the days of Peter and this would even be true with Paul. Paul would have been able to relate to this whole idea when when saints of God traveled in those days. And I want you to think about something. There was not uh, a public places to stay like there are today. You go out and get on a road today and there's a, there's a thousand places between here, and just example, between here in Columbus or here in Cincinnati. You get in the car, there's thousands of places you could stop and never need anybody to help you. Well, in those days, there wasn't a place to stay. These travelers as they were going, hospitality was these traveling believers, allow them to come into your home and put them up, if you will. That's the hospitality he was talking about here. Now, it doesn't mean it's not for us today, but it was much more important in that day because they didn't have these places to stay. These are common, these are common Christian graces. These are common things that ought to happen in the life of believers. But notice he says, again, as every man hath received the gift even so minister the same one to another as good stewards. A steward is someone who's been given charge over. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Someone that's been given as an overseer of this or a, a, as he says, a steward. Now listen, how does, how does this empowering grace, what does it look like? Well, it's going to take many different shapes. It's going to look a lot of different ways. One person uh, may have it in one form and another person may have it in another form, yet it's still the grace of God that's at work. There's a sweet fellowship when people are using this gift of grace amongst each other. When we think about every believer being given this gift of God's empowering grace, what is the purpose of it? It is to build up the church of God. 
It's not just to make us feel better about ourselves. It's not just so that we, we feel better and say, hey, I got this marked off on my list today. As we live through this empowering grace of God, what it is doing, look what he says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These gifts of grace are to be used to build up the church. What happens when the church is edified and encouraged and built up? Jesus Christ is glorified. Christ's name is lifted up. Peter goes on to say, any man who speaks or teaches the Word of God, who speaks the revealed oracles of God, he says every one of those who do that must do that in God's strength. He has to do that by the empowerment that God gives him. A man can come and speak encouraging words. He can speak motivational words. But he cannot, he cannot speak the Word of God unless it is done in the power of God's strength. Every time a preacher preaches, he ought to be preaching by the empowering grace of God. Every time we minister unto somebody else, we ought to be ministering by the empowering grace of God. These gifts that have been given. When we think about men speaking, who should he make his model? He should be careful about what he speaks. He should be careful about how he speaks because he's speaking the oracles of God. When a man stands up before you and opens up the Bible and he's, he's attempting to expound the Scripture, he's attempting to say, thus saith the Lord. He's not just speaking words on a page. He's speaking the oracles of God or that which has been revealed. Which in and of itself is not an easy thing to do. But he says, if any man minister, let him do it. Look what he says. Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. That's why I'm talking about this empowering grace tonight. You may understand it a different way. You may, this may be the first time you've ever heard that phrase, empowering grace. I'm not trying to make up a new doctrine. I'm just trying to help us to see that grace is something that in order for us to live this type of a life, it has to be done in the strength of God's power. I'm not going to be able to serve in my own strength. I'm not going to be able to do anything for the cause of God unless I do it in the ability in which God gives me. I'm not going to be able to forgive people unless I do it in the ability that God's given me. I'm not going to be able to have fervent love for each other unless I do it by the ability that God's given me. I'm not going to be hospitable unless I have it and do it in the ability that God has given me. I'm not going to be able to turn from my past life unless I do it in the ability that God has given me. I'm not able to do anything apart from God. My strength, my human strength does nothing in this life apart from God's strengthening power. Now what's very interesting here is verse 11, and right at the end of that verse, Peter, it's almost as if Peter puts down the pen or puts down the, the writing instrument 
He just lifts up his voice in praise. Notice, it's almost, he's going down the line. All of a sudden, he says that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He said, I give you all these things that Christ may be glorified to him or to whom be praise and dominion forever. It's almost as if Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the middle of it, it's as if he puts the pen down and he says, praise God for these truths. Praise God for his empowering grace. Praise God for who he is. You know, we often think about our gifts. We think about what God has given us to do. Peter's gone a long way here. He's gone from telling them that if you don't share in the suffering of Christ, how do you expect to share in his glory? How do you expect to live in, in how he's been exalted? He says, if, if, if you suffer, understand that the world is going to rebuke you. The world's going to reproach you. Why? Because they see Christ. They see that which they hate. He's warning them that when they lift up their mouths against you, when they desire to, to, to ridicule you, be reminded of the hope that's in you. Be reminded of the, the glory of God that's in you. Remember, you're a stranger. You're, you're just passing through. The Savior reminded His own disciples when He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. The world doesn't love you. You're not of the world. I'm paraphrasing. You're not of the world. And he said, I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Folks, mark it down. The reason the world hates you as a believer today is for the very reason Christ said they would. is because I've chosen you out of the world. That's why they hate you. Christ is the reason believers are hated. Christ is the reason. Yet if God has given us this ability... To edify one another. We shouldn't neglect it. If God's given us the ability to fervently love one another, speak the oracles of God, folks, we should never, ever, ever attempt to do any of these things without God. You know, we talk about it a lot. We say, well, if I was to say, would you want a man to stand up and preach before you who had no, he had no uh, knowledge of the Bible, he had no understanding of the Bible, uh, but he, he's going to go and give his best chance. Would you want that man preaching? Absolutely not. You'd say, no, I, we don't want to, he's, I want him to, to minister in the wisdom and the knowledge of, of God's word. But yet when it comes to these things, we think, well, I don't need God's grace for this. I don't need God's power for this. Just as a preacher who stands up before you to preach this needs the empowering grace of God, you and I need the empowering grace of God to live this life. We say, well, no, when you preach the word, that's a sacred thing. These are all sacred things. How you love one another is sacred. And you can't do it just by saying, I'm going to love people in the best way I know how. You're going to do it because of this strength that God gives you. God supplies by His Spirit the very way to glorify God. I glorify God by that empowering grace which He's put in me. Now we'll notice next week when we get into the rest of this, Peter's going to now begin talking about a fiery trial. And 
Remember, the fiery trial that he's talking about doesn't remove us from the reality of the glory of God. In other words, even though the fiery trial comes, don't forget you are to do this to the glory of God. You're to do this even though he's going to talk about suffering. You're going to be partakers of Christ's sufferings. Then when his glory shall be revealed, you shall be glad with exceeding joy. He'll talk about when you're reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. These are contrary thoughts that without God, our mind cannot even fathom this. What do you mean when I'm reproached, I'm going to be happy? But he's going to also say, if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. He's going to again talk about judgment. He's going to talk about what's to come. Folks, when we think about this tonight, understand that we're, we're not talking about something that is, that is impossible. But we are talking about something that cannot be done unless it is done in the power of God. Why do we do it? Because God has commanded us to do it. God's commanded us to live this life. Don't live any longer in the old way. Live in the way which is now. We've been given empowering grace to live in this world. We've been given the ability to live and to minister and to preach and to teach. And if so be it, even to suffer persecution and reproach. All for the glory of God. We need that empowering grace. We need the ability that the strength that the Holy Spirit of God gives. Without it, none of us can do this. Let's stand all around if you would and we'll be